Chapter Twenty Eight, Sections One to Three of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Penfold. The Student's Roman Empire, Part Two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Twenty Eight. The Principate of Marcus Aurelius, one sixty one through one eighty A.D. Sections one to three. Section one, Marcus and Verus, the two Augusti. Marcus Aurelius had reached the age of forty, born at Rome one twenty one A.D. When he succeeded Antoninus, his family belonged to Sucubo, a municipal town near Cordoba in Spain. His grandfather was one of the new patricians created by Vespasian. He had shown an early predilection both for the study of Stoic philosophy and for the practice of Stoic austerity. When he was twelve years old, his mother Domitia Lucilla could hardly induce him to lie on a bed spread with sheepskins. His whole life was marked by similar asceticism. As his constitution was weak, he was obliged to spend some care in husbanding the forces of his body, and had constantly to consult the medical skill of the famous physician Galen and others. But he did this as a duty. His only pleasures were meditation and the society of philosophers and men of letters. No man has ever carried further than Marcus Aurelius the desire of moral perfection, and he accounted, like other Stoics, the service of humanity indispensable to the attainment of such perfection. The idea which runs through all his meditations, a collection of thoughts jotted down in the leisure moments of a busy life, much of it is written in the camps on the Danube during the Marcumanic War, is that of a natural unity, embracing not only mankind, but nature and God, in which every individual has a distinct place of his own, and distinct functions to fulfill. Each man is expected to act so as to promote not his own good, at least directly, but the general good of the great whole, of which he forms part, and on whose welfare his own welfare depends. The meditations, in fact, show how the Stoic theory of pantheism is to be applied in detail to life and morality. Thus Marcus Aurelius enjoins service to others as the special function for which we are adapted by nature. "'What more dost thou want?' he asks, "'when thou hast done a man a service.' Art thou not content that thou hast done something conformable to thy nature, and dost thou seek to be paid for it, just as if the eye demanded a recompense for seeing or the foot for walking? He considered the social principle as the chief in the constitution of human nature. Yet he had himself a passion for solitude, which he set himself strictly to keep under. Men seek retreats for themselves, he says. Houses in the country, seashores and mountains, and thou too art wont to desire such things very much. But this is altogether a mark of the most common sort of men, for it is in thy power, whenever thou shalt choose, to retire into thyself. And he goes on to advise constant self-communing. His view of life is austere and even sad. The things which are much valued in life are empty and rotten and trifling. But he cultivated a cheerful temper, his teacher Maximus, he tells us, had taught him cheerfulness in all circumstances as well as in illness. The precepts on which he is always dwelling are to love all men as brothers, to forgive injuries, and to sacrifice everything to duty. 
few men have more nearly approached in practice their own ideal. Plato had prophesied that there would be no end of the sufferings of mankind until a philosopher should become a king, or until a king should become a philosopher. This had at length come to pass. A philosopher now ruled over a far greater state, a far larger portion of mankind than Plato had dreamed of. The philosophic ruler, whom the world had at length obtained, did not attempt to establish the ideal republic of Plato or any other a priori constitution, but he treasured up Plato's words and made it his aim to mitigate suffering and to help humanity. He desired to show that Plato's saying was really true. The idea of helping humanity and alleviating its burdens was one of the leading sentiments of the new Stoicism which Marcus represented but after all he was only doing on system what antoninus had been already doing instinctively antoninus indeed was also in some measure imbued with stoic ideas two different views have been taken of the reign of marcus aurelius some regard the empire as fortunate to have been ruled by such a noble model of pagan virtue such an unselfish and high-minded prince others pity the subjects of a mere philosopher who took more interest in the disputations of sophists and rhetoricians than in the affairs of the state which he governed there is a certain measure of truth in this censorious criticism but it may easily be exaggerated his fault was that he thought more of doing his duty than of what was good for the state he regarded every question from the standpoint of personal ethics rather than from that of political wisdom he was excessively self-conscious and used to ask himself in a difficulty not what is the best course but rather how should the philosopher act on the other hand it must be remembered to his credit that he did not as many serious philosophers as plato himself might have been tempted to do make any attempt to apply a priori theories to politics or perform experiments with a fabric of the constitution the single innovation in constitutional practice which he introduced was as we shall see not a very happy one in general he clung to the traditions of the empire and walked on the lines marked out by his predecessors he did not try to reform the world on a model constructed in the philosopher's workshop he was a precisian in ethics but he was not a doctrinaire in politics he honored philosophers above all men but did not allow them to interfere in the management of the state but if aurelius was determined to show by righteous and beneficent government that plato was right fortune was equally determined to show that plato was wrong men were to learn by the reign of aurelius that their happiness cannot be secured by political government independently of external circumstances unless indeed they adopt the maxims of stoicism and feel indifferent to external circumstances themselves the imperial philosopher fell on evil times his principate was marked by a series of formidable wars on the Euphrates and the Danube, with hardly an interval of peace, and the empire was devastated by one of those terrible plagues, like the Black Death of the fourteenth century, which produce permanent effects on the lands which they visit. It required all the stoical resignation and patience that Marcus could command to stand firmly at the helm throughout these tempests, which were the heralds of the beginning of the decline of the empire." the first act of marcus on being elected emperor by the senate was highly characteristic of the man and shows his weak point he did not know men his adoptive brother l commodus had been kept in the background by antoninus and received no honors except such as might be permitted to any member of the imperial house he was a young man without much character or ability and fond of pleasure though his dissoluteness has perhaps been exaggerated according to the example set by hadrian and antoninus 
it would have been proper for Marcus to make Lucius his consort, with the title of Caesar and subordinate proconsular power. But Marcus was not content with this. He regarded Lucius as having an equal right with himself to the supreme dignity, and deemed it his duty to share the principate equally with his brother. He therefore insisted that the Senate should confer all the titles and privileges which he had himself received on Lucius also. Thus Marcus and Lucius, henceforward called El Verus, were colleagues, co-equal and each ruling in his own right over the whole empire. Lucius, like Marcus, was an Augustus and a princeps. The theory of the Principate was quite compatible with such collegiality, but in practice it was an innovation. Two Augusti had never ruled together over the empire before. Marcus assuredly did not look into the future or consider the probable consequences of introducing this system. But it was clear enough that the joint rule of two co-equal emperors must in most cases lead to rupture and disunion, unless either, one, one of them were to keep himself in the background, or, two, the territory of the empire were to be divided between them into two huge provinces. In the case of Marcus and Lucius, harmony was preserved because Lucius was good-natured, insignificant, and unambitious, and willingly left all initiation to his elder brother. If he had been a strong and energetic man, the harmony would have been as little imperiled, for in that case Marcus would have gladly resigned the chief conduct of affairs to him. But though the precedent which Marcus introduced made little difference in his own case, it was fraught with grave consequences in a later age, when the second alternative came to pass, and the empire ruled by two Augusti was split up into two distinct realms. Section 2. Administration of Marcus. The points which chiefly call for notice in the internal policy of Marcus Aurelius are, 1. The further growth of the aristocratic power of the princeps, combined with punctilious outward deference to the Senate. 2. The further growth of centralization on the lines of Trajan and Hadrian. 3. An injudicious financial administration. 4. A marked advance on the lines of Antoninus Pius in humanity and equity in legislation. The deference which Marcus paid to the Senate has been made much of and was duly appreciated. When at Rome, he was constantly in attendance in the Curia, and when in Campania, he used often to come all the way to Rome to introduce a proposal. He never quitted the assembly until the consul pronounced the words of dismissal, Nihil vos muramur, patres conscripti. We no longer detain you, P.C. He used regularly to refer foreign affairs to the Senate, and present treaties to receive its confirmation. In all this Marcus followed the policy of Trajan, but, at the same time, he not only surrendered none of the prerogatives or powers which the emperors had gradually usurped, but rather increased them. This path had been marked out for him by Antoninus Pius, for on his elevation to the rank of Caesar he had received the right of bringing five relationes in writing before the Senate, which should have precedence before all others. The power of the emperor to introduce one bill, Relationum fessere, in writing at each sitting, which should be read before all others by an imperial quaestor, had been established by Augustus and practiced by his successors. Antoninus himself had the right of four relationes, but we have no evidence that, until Marcus, any emperor possessed the right of so many as five relationes. The imperial relatio took the form of an oration or letter to the Senate, and the fiction that the emperor was proposing it in person seems to have been kept up. 
Hadrian had felt himself obliged to follow Nero's example, and take oath in the Senate that he would never condemn a senator to death. But Marcus could not be moved to take this step, although he endeavored throughout his reign to act as if he had. He thus refused to recognize the principle that the senators were exempt from being tried at the imperial tribunal, or could not be condemned by their peers. It is also important to observe that he made large use of the powers which lay in his hands to determine the constitution of the Senate. He employed the right of adlection to raise many of his friends to the rank of praetorian and adelician senators. The title Vir Clarissimus, abbreviated in inscriptions to V.C., was in general use in the second century as a title of honor for senators. It was perhaps Marcus who first gave it regular official sanction. It is known with more certainty that he divided the public officials of equestrian rank into three classes. One, viri eminentissimi, confined to the praetorian prefects. Two, viri perfectissimi, including the heads of departments at Rome. Three, viri egregii, procurators and less important subordinate officials. The title of a municipal knight, in Italy, who did not hold office, was Splendidus Eques Romanus. Marcus contributed to the improvement of the new civil service, which had been organized by Hadrian, by appointing under-secretaries in the various departments, and thus diminishing the burdens which fell on the chiefs. It is probable that he fixed certain salaries for the members of the imperial concilium, but what is of more importance, the strange development of the office of praetorian prefect, which, beginning as a purely military, ultimately became a purely civil office, enters on a new stage. Under Marcus, the praetorian prefecture is occasionally filled by eminent jurists, and the prefect is thus more clearly designated as representative of the emperor. In the administration of Italy, he revived the four judges who had been instituted by Hadrian, and, to please the Senate, abolished by Pius. But in reviving this institution, he modified it. The juridici, for so they were now called, if not before, were no longer consulars, but praetorians, and thus the appointment was accessible to a larger class. The institution of the curatores republicae, chosen from either the senatorial or the equestrian order, seems to have been developed further, and doubtless from financial motives. Thus Marcus encouraged that advance of centralization which soon paralyzed public life in the municipal towns of Italy. On the other hand, he seems to have accorded greater freedom to the public associations and guilds, collegia, which were regarded with such suspicion by Trajan. He gave them the power of making wills and performing the act of manumission, in fact, to a certain extent, the privileges of a legal person. But he took the precaution of making a regulation that no one should belong to more than one collegium at the same time. Pius had left a large sum in the treasury, notwithstanding the numerous buildings which he had undertaken. But the imprudent and lavish administration of Marcus involved the fiscus in serious financial difficulties. His errors in this respect were chiefly due to his good nature. On his accession, he indulged in an act of liberality which was uncalled for, and indeed mischievous. He gave each soldier of the Praetorian Guard a sum of twenty thousand sesterces, about one hundred sixty pounds, and a proportional sum to the other soldiers. He repeatedly bestowed large congiara on the people, and he increased the number of those entitled to receive the public corn. Towards the end of his reign he remitted an immense sum of arrears, 178 A.D., 
Much of the extravagant expenditure may, perhaps, be set down to the account of El Veris, but it is not known how the two colleagues arranged between themselves the control of the fiscus. In all financial matters, Marcus was indulgent and easy-going, in accordance with his philosophical theories on the duties of a prince. But in this reign the empire was called to face dangers which required all its strength and entailed heavy expenses, so that greater stringency in the taxation and greater economy in the administration were urgently required. Marcus, under the pressure of his military expenses, was forced to pawn his crown jewels and to depreciate the gold coinage. Things went so far that, at the end of his principate, the issue of gold came altogether to a stop, and the silver coinage was called in, in order to be issued in a depreciated form. It is therefore not surprising that very little was done by Marcus in the way of public buildings. That which above all things links together the reigns of Antoninus and Marcus, and makes them appear as an epoch animated by a single spirit, is the policy in legislation and administration of justice common to both. What has already been said, in these respects, of Antoninus applies to Marcus. To come to the aid of the weaker, to mitigate the estate of slaves, to facilitate manumission, to protect the condition of wards, were the objects of Marcus as of his predecessor. A special officer, Praetor Tutelarius, was instituted to regulate difficulties between wards and guardians. The law permitting a creditor to seize the goods of a debtor was modified. Children no longer suffered disgrace for the crimes of their fathers. The emperor was himself untiring in hearing causes, and his sentences were marked by leniency. Like Antoninus, he was anxious to defend the provinces against the oppression of procurators, and to come to the assistance of communities in the case of public disasters. Section 3. The Parthian War Almost immediately after his accession, Marcus Aurelius was threatened by hostilities both in the east and in the west. The dangers in the west were easily dealt with. The Picts threatened Britain, and at the same time the Britannic legions formed a design to make the Legatus, M. Statius Priscus, emperor in place of Marcus. These movements were speedily checked, and attacks of the Chatai and Chausai in the Rhine provinces were also repelled. But it was impossible to avert the greater danger which had been long looming in the east. Hadrian and Antoninus had succeeded in deferring the evil day, but when Marcus came it could be deterred no longer. The Parthian king Vologeses was an able and ambitious man. He had pulled together the Parthian realm, which he had found split up into a num number of kingdoms, and having firmly established its unity, he resolved to get Armenia into his power. No sooner was Pius dead than a Parthian general invaded Armenia and set Pacorus, and Arsacid on the throne. The governor of Cappadocia, P. alias Severianus Maximus, immediately led a legion across the Euphrates, and at Elegea, the place at which Parthomasiris had bowed the knee to Trajan, a battle was fought, and the Roman legion was annihilated. Severianus slew himself. The Parthians, elated by this victory, invaded Syria and defeated the Roman army, then under L. Etidius Cornelianus, in consequence of these disasters, which proved that the Oriental legions were as demoralized and inefficient as they had been a hundred years before when they were taken in hand by Corbulo, it was necessary to transport western legions to defend the eastern provinces. Statius Priscus was appointed to succeed Severianus in Cappadocia, while Julius Verus became governor of Syria. The supreme command in the war was undertaken by the emperor Verus, 
162 A.D., who, however, had neither military gifts nor a sense of duty, and spent most of his time at Antioch in amusements, leaving the actual conduct of the war to his generals, Avidius Cassius, Priscus, and Martius Verus. At first, overtures of peace were made, for Marcus Aurelius would have been glad to avoid the war, but Vologeses rejected them and left the Romans no choice. Armenia was soon recovered by Priscus, who captured Artaxata and burned it to the ground. 163 A.D. Near its site, Kyanopolis, or New City, in Armenian nor Kalak, was built, and became the capital of the country. Pacorus and his Parthians were driven out, and Sohamus, a prince of our Sassid family but a Roman senator and devoted to Rome, was raised to the throne. 163 A.D. Thus the war led to no theoretical change in the position of Armenia. This country still remained a Roman dependency, ruled by a prince of Parthian blood. But in actual fact it was now bound more closely to Rome than before, owing to the personal interests of Sohamus. After this success, Varus assumed the title Arminiacus, but Syria and Mesopotamia were the scene of the most serious events of the war, which was chiefly conducted by Avidius Cassius, who became governor of Syria, about 164 A.D. Of the details we know very little. A Roman victory at Sura was followed by the capture of the fortress Nisiphorium on the Mesopotamian side of the Euphrates. At Zugma the Parthians offered strenuous resistance to the Romans crossing the river, but were wholly defeated in a battle at Europus. Having thus opened their way into Mesopotamia, the legions stormed Dasara, laid siege to Edessa, and captured Nisibis. The satraps forsook their king, and the victorious army marched on Ctesiphon. The Greek city of Seleucia opened its gates, but the inhabitants were subsequently accused of collusion with the enemy, and it was burned to the ground. Ctesiphon, the Parthian capital, was taken and destroyed. The Romans also penetrated into Media. In 165 AD the war was practically finished, and Varus was able to return to Rome to celebrate a brilliant triumph in conjunction with his brother, 166 AD. Lucius bore the titles Armeniacus Parthicus Maximus and Medicus, Marcus that of Armeniacus Parthicus. Through this war Rome not only won immunity from Parthian aggressions for many years and increased her prestige, but also slightly enlarged her territory. The district of Mesopotamia known as Osriene was made a Roman dependency, and Carhe became a free city under Roman protection. Thus Marcus committed himself, though on a very small scale, to the same policy which Trajan had inaugurated on a very large scale, and which Hadrian had disapproved of. Seeing that Marcus was by no means a grasping or acquisitive ruler, this circumstance suggests that there was something to be said on grounds of policy for Trajan's enterprise. Fate willed that these successes in the east should be bought at a terrible cost. The army of Avidius Cassius contracted the germs of a pestilential disease in the Tigris regions, and brought the infection back with them into Roman dominion. The plague spread in the eastern provinces, and was carried to the west by the legions who returned with Varus. The army was terribly ravaged by this visitation. Italy was devastated, and many districts left without inhabitants. In Rome immense numbers died, and Marcus ordained that both poor and rich should be buried at the public expense. He essayed all the ceremonies of the national religion to save the state, and performed a lustration of the city. He even attempted to propitiate foreign deities. 
there is no doubt that this virulent pestilence which spread in every direction produced far-reaching effects on the population of the empire the historian niebuhr even goes so far as to think that the ancient world never recovered from the blow but we know very little about it beyond some details given by the physician galen no account has been preserved like that which thucydides gives us of the plague at athens or that which procopius wrote of the great pestilence in the reign of justinian or like boccaccio's description of the black death in the fourteenth century the end of chapter twenty eight sections one to three recording by mark penfold